0: in verse 25, this expert in the law, the scribe, he gets up and he says, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And we're not told exactly what test he's giving Jesus right now. We don't know what he's getting at. Um, it might be trying to test Jesus' knowledge. It might be trying to test his orthodoxy. But he's testing Jesus right now. And Jesus' favorite response to these kinds of tests is To respond by asking questions or telling stories. Those are like the two ways he responds to people's tests. And it's really a genius way to respond. He asks questions and he tells stories. And so first he asks a question. He's talking to an expert in the law, right? And so he asks the expert in the law, what is written in the law? How do you read it? It's a fair question, right, for somebody who's an expert, And when when we say the law, what I'm talking about is the Torah. It's the first five books of the Old Testament, the one that contains the creation accounts, the exodus, the laws given by God to the people of Israel when he brought them out of slavery from Egypt and into the promised land, right? These were the laws that were supposed to set them apart. They were supposed to show them how to follow God, how to be God's people, living counter to the surrounding cultures, And so Jesus, he asks this law expert, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Verse 27, he answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now this is a synthesis of two commands found in the law. There's one in Deuteronomy 6.5, that's the command to love God. And then Leviticus 19.8 says, love your neighbor as yourself. These are the first and second most important commandments in Scripture. And they, they can't be separated from one another, right? If you're loving God, you're going to be loving your neighbor. If you're loving your neighbor, you're going to be loving God. And, and there, are, there are other areas in the Gospels um, during Jesus' ministry where he confirms this. In, in our passage today, he does too. Verse 8, he says, You've answered correctly, he told them. Do this and you will live. Right? Do this and you will live. Love God and love your neighbor and you will live. It sounds simple at first, right? But when you think about the command, love your neighbor, it's a pretty big undertaking, right? What does it look like to love your neighbor as yourself? How do you know when you've met the mark enough where you can check the box that you have loved your neighbor as yourself? Right. If somebody asked you today as broad a broader question as, do you love your neighbors as yourself? That'd be kind of a, a hard question to answer. Right. We might want a little more nuance than that, something a little more focused and detailed. Right? Does any of us feel like we have measured up to the broad command of loving our neighbors as we love ourselves? Can any of us say, yes, I, I, I've succeeded that. I love my neighbors as I love myself in the same way that I care for myself and my own. I care for my neighbors. That's just what I do. That's who I am. Never had a problem with it. Right? I don't think any of us would say that we do this perfectly, right? Right. Uh, It's a big and broad command with very little nuance. And so this expert in the law, he actually, he wants to defend himself. He wants to vindicate himself. The text literally says he wants to justify himself. And how might he do that? Well, one way is to make this command a little more manageable, right? Let's limit the definition of neighbor, To limit those that were responsible for loving might just make this command doable. So his response to Jesus is, and who is my neighbor? If Jesus can make this a manageable group, maybe we have a shot at inheriting eternal life. Right? It's a practical place to start, but it also reveals the heart of this scribe. For him, perhaps loving his neighbor is a, is a box that he wants to check off. Right? Remember, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Remember, I said Jesus likes to respond to people, testing him in two ways, questions and stories. And so he's asked this man a question. Uh, And now instead of responding to the law expert's question directly, Jesus is going to tell a story. You know, like sometimes you talk to people and they say, that reminds me of a story, and they just kind of go on, right? Jesus' parables are just stories that he tells that are intended to reveal deep truths. They're much more effective than just giving a straight and like didactic or like teaching kind of, you know, just here's it straight and simple That is a little harder to actually mine and dig and get like the real fullness of what's there. So he uses these parables to reveal deep truths about himself and about the kingdom. And now uh, we're going to get to get to the meat of this teaching here. So he tells him this story. I'm going to read it again. Jesus took up the question and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan on his journey came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Right. Jesus tells this story and he flips the question. Right. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man? Right? He didn't ask whose neighbor was the man, right? Who's, who, which of these do you think was responsible for the man, right? He asks who was a neighbor to him, right? In verse 37, the scribe says, the one who showed mercy to him. Then Jesus told him, go and do the same. And in this short story, we have a picture of what it means to be a neighbor. Now, as a church that, you know, I, like I said, we want to build thriving communities of neighbors, who love God and love one another, do you think that maybe we should tune into this passage? right? Absolutely. We should, we should really be paying attention to this passage if we're saying that this is the mission of our church. And so let's dig into this parable a bit. Right, we're going to see three realities surface about being a neighbor. We're going to talk about how this kind of love, like what motivates this kind of love. We're gonna talk about what it looks like when it's displayed, and we're gonna talk about what empowers this kind of love. And so we're gonna look at the motivation, the display, and the empowerment of loving your neighbor. Right? Asking questions like, what prompts love like this? Or, Or what does it look like when it translates into action? And how can we be empowered to love radically like the good Samaritan? So let's look at the motivation we see in this passage. Three people walk by this guy and only one stops, right? None of them stop except for one. So let's start there because the contrast between the Samaritan and these two Jewish travelers, it's, it's telling, right? Jesus says the man who got attacked was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. And for centuries, um, this journey was actually infamous for its danger. Right? It was a journey that would take you thousands of feet above sea level and then drop you down hundreds of feet below. There were lots of caves and crags where robbers would hide out. And, and when you pass by, they'd come out and attack you. Right? These were rough times. There were no car doors to lock, right? Just you and the road. This is why people traveled in big groups. Right, and so this guy must have been traveling alone. These robbers come out, they strip him, beat him, leave him half dead. And as Jesus tells this story, he introduces his first traveler with with kind of a hint of hope. Right, he this this guy's laying here, and then he says a priest happened to be going down that road. He just so happened to be there. Right, and if you're if you're listening to him at this point, you might say, Oh, thank God. Thank God a priest was walking down the road because this man is likely Jewish, right? So this is one of his people, a priest. This holy man is walking down the road, somebody who's close to God, who should be loving God and loving others. This is is good news, right? Help us around the corner, the pinnacle of piety, right? He was supposed to be close to God. He served in the temple. But Jesus says when he saw him, he passed on the other side. Right, But hope isn't lost. A Levite comes down the road, another temple worker. He might have been thought of as like a priest's assistant. He sees this man, and he moves to the other side. So two of the most well-regarded and religious types of folks in Israel, they move to the other side of the road. They leave the man half dead. They moved over to the other side of the road. Why? Why? Right it's almost like they believe that if they can reduce their proximity to this victim they can reduce their responsibility for him. Right now this man who is attacked he's assumed to be Jewish a fellow Israelite. But is he my neighbor? All the way out here on the road nobody looking right nobody to impress maybe not maybe if i cross the road and keep walking right get a little further away from him i can discharge some guilt right if i get far enough away i'll be justified in my choice not to intervene remember this law expert the original asker of the question he was seeking to justify himself who is my neighbor he asked so jesus is using two examples of people who would certainly we'd certainly think would be holy enough to inherit eternal life, right? Yet they're clearly ignoring God's most important, second most important commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Why? Before we get to that, there's another person passing on the road. And if you're the the law expert, the scribe who asked this question, then maybe you're thinking the third one, you have a priest, you have a Levite, maybe the third one will be a scribe, right? Maybe the third one will be an expert in the law, right? The natural next person might be that. We're talking about these holy people. So if we're walking through these highly regarded holy people of the day, that would make sense. And this would be an opportunity for maybe the scribe to get it right, right? The third one in succession. Maybe the scribe's going to come down the road and he's going to get it right. But it's not the scribe. It's a Samaritan, Right? And that's a hard turn in the story. That's, that's a, a stark contrast, right? From two Jewish holy men to someone uh, Israelites viewed as the enemy, someone Israelites viewed as untouchable, right? Jews and Samaritans were enemies. Samaritans were from a region called Samaria, and they were among the least respected people in Israelite culture. They had similar ancestral history, but it was supposed that Samaritans were part of a tainted bloodline and and practiced a compromised form of Judaism. But at the same time, Samaritans also hated Jews and believed that they practiced a false religion as well. And so this Samaritan is walking on the path, Jesus says in verse 33, he came up to him and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. And let's stop there because this is where we find the contrast, right? This is the big difference. He had compassion on him, right? Loving your neighbor starts with seeing your neighbor and having compassion, right? Loving your neighbor starts with seeing your neighbor and having compassion. The Samaritan sees this man lying in the road and he has compassion. And this is a word that's used of Jesus a lot in the gospel accounts, Jesus had compassion. It's one of those things that just categorizes Jesus. Before he heals the sick, in Matthew 14, 14, it says he had compassion on the crowds and healed their sick. Right? Compassion, in, even in English, if you break it down, it's literally to suffer together. Right? Calm, meaning with. Passion, meaning suffer, suffer with. Right? Compassion is when you make someone else's suffering your problem. All right, Compassion is when you make someone else's suffering your problem. It's the opposite of what the religious leaders do in the story. All right, so two things are happening. Jesus is presenting a positive example of a Samaritan following the command of God and the picture of a Samaritan having compassion on a Jew, his enemy. And to us, it seems like it would be, you know, petty for the Samaritan not to want to help the help the guy, right? Just because he was Jewish, he wouldn't help him. But important, it's important to know just the context that they're talking about here. This individualistic way of seeing people that we have in our place and time right now, that was not really a factor back then people saw each other as groups right nations tribes if you were part of an enemy nation if you were part of an enemy tribe then you were the enemy there was no like oh you know i hate samaritans except for you right that's just not the way people thought right it's just not the way that they acted back then so for this guy to see his enemy someone from an enemy nation an enemy religion laying in the road it Nobody in that culture would have really blamed him for walking by, right? And that highlights for us just how unexpected this storyline is. He doesn't care that he's Jewish. He connects with him on a human level first and foremost, right? The Samaritan makes this man's problem his problem. But why him? Why the Samaritan? Why did the others pass by, you know we're not we're not told right, but now might be a good question to ask ourselves: Why do we move to the other side of the road? Right? I'd have a hard time believing any of us never have done that. Right? Have never done that. So let's look inward. Right? Why? Does anyone have? You know, even you can shout it out, any insight. Why would we move to the other side of the road? What's going on internally that makes us not want to see, not want to have compassion? What prevents us? Fear. Fear. Being judged. Being judged. No. Safety. Safety. Apathy. Apathy. Yeah, not my problem. Maybe it's their fault that they're in the situation they're in. So why should we help them? You know, I think back to a news story I read a while back about a man who uh, left a bar and got robbed at a 7-Eleven. His attackers knocked him out. He laid in the road for a few minutes. Video surveillance footage shows people walking by him. Some people even crouched over him and kept walking. It was visible from the bar that he had just left, but nobody intervened. Right. Nobody called 911 or even moved him from the street or tried to stop the cars. And after two minutes in the street, a car eventually ran him over and ended his life. And you think, is there no mercy? Right? Why would people do that? Why would, why would nobody help this man? He was, he was just about my age, you know? According to social psychologists it's called the bystander effect. Right? Someone else will do it. In fact, the probability that somebody's going to help you in a situation like this is actually lower when there are more people around. Right? You'd think it'd be the opposite. But folks cite reasons like safety, right? They'll say safety. Yes, but also believing that someone more qualified will do it. Right. Sometimes it's it's a little more complex, right? Not wanting to get tied up with any subsequent legal matters. If I go and help this guy, is somebody gonna ask me to be a witness to like the robbery am I gonna get called into court? Is this gonna be like a laundry list of things that I have to do now, right? Worrying that helping will make them feel foolish, being embarrassed, being judged, taking cues from others around them. But this Samaritan man, he doesn't walk by thinking someone else is going to take care of this guy on the road. The neighbor love Jesus is showing us is motivated by compassion, making someone else's problem your problem. Right, That's the start. But it doesn't end there. It's displayed through mercy. This kind of love is displayed through acts of mercy. True compassion Making someone suffering your problem, it will lead to acts of mercy. When you make someone's problem your problem, that's just the next logical step. Take care of them the way you, your very self, would want to be taken care of. right? And So what does he do? Well, first he walks over to him. Instead of withdrawing, he gets closer. And then he addresses his immediate needs. He gives him bandages. Some people have said that uh, someone traveling like that probably would have needed to use their own clothes for that. He uses costly products like olive oil and wine. He uses oil to soothe the wounds, wine to disinfect. And then he picks him up. He puts him on his own animal, likely a mule, uh, and he, he is probably now walking, right, instead of riding his own mule or donkey. And then he brings him to an inn. He takes care of him there overnight, right? And he stabilizes him. He spends his time with this man. He takes two denarii, that's two days' worth of wages, and he gives it to the innkeeper. And he tells him, Take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever you spend. He gives his money. Right? He's going to follow up. He's going to check on this man when he comes back. Right? He breaks through many of the barriers that keep us from action. Right? This is going to cost him some money. It's going to cost him time. Uh, he's going to see and experience some really uncomfortable things. Right, It's going to use up his relational energy this is not a transactional way of helping. This isn't distant charity. This is hands on, embodied, and fleshed mercy a willingness to do what it takes, but not with the motivation to check a box or, or clear himself of guilt. See, when we're looking to check a box, we want to get the service over with as quickly as we can, right? But when we're motivated by compassion, common humanity, right? And when we let go of self-preservation, we can be more concerned about the other person than we are about ourselves. And I don't want to overstretch this allegory or this illustration here, but notice that the Samaritan still continued his journey, right? This is a misconception that some people have. Loving your neighbor as yourself doesn't mean that you need to become enmeshed with your neighbor, Right? And I think sometimes this is what some of us fear, and, and it might be where some of us naturally gravitate. Right? Loving your neighbor doesn't mean you and your neighbor become the same person. Right? Loving your neighbor as yourself doesn't mean your neighbor becomes yourself. It's okay to have boundaries. It's okay to use discernment and wisdom. It's okay to do what you can do. But I've seen many compassionate and empathetic people get too wrapped up in the lives of those that they're helping. So you don't know where one begins and the other ends, right? I've seen people make really bad decisions in the name of helping others only to end up in a place where they can't even help themselves, right? And, and, and hear me when I say I'm not saying that we should avoid painful sacrifice in the name of loving our neighbor. I think we should sacrifice even to the point of pain to love our neighbor. But I'm saying even this story, which epitomizes neighbor love, leaves room for boundaries, right? Some of us need to have better boundaries. Some of us need to stop using boundaries as an excuse for not loving our neighbors, right? We, we run the spectrum. Some of us need to have more boundaries. Some of us need not use boundaries and ex- as an excuse as why we aren't loving our neighbors. Where on that spectrum do you fall? Jesus shows us that loving our neighbors is motivated by compassion and displayed through mercy. That's why he asks this expert in the law. In verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of robbers? And now now this scribe has to answer, and, and maybe he can't even bring himself to choke it out. He can't choke out the name Samaritan, uh, but he does say this. The one who showed mercy to him. Not the one who felt mercy toward him. The one who showed it. Right? Loving your neighbor is displayed. It's experienced through acts of mercy, through meeting needs, whether that's material, relational, financial, temporal, right? What have you. Jesus says to him, go and do the same. And that's the end of this scene. What would it take for us to live like this? What needs to line up for you? When will it be the right time? Notice how Jesus flips this question. He asks, who is my neighbor? And Jesus says, who proved to be a neighbor? The man's approach is flawed, right? He wants to find out who he's responsible for. He wants to limit the number. But Jesus is saying, it's about you being a neighbor, Wherever you go, it's about being more than it's about doing. Right? He asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He wants to earn his way to salvation. Jesus tells him not what he must do, but who he should be. Be a neighbor. If the command is to love your neighbor as yourself, the first question needs to be, who would you like to be your neighbor, right? If you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself, who would you like to be your neighbor, right? Then be that neighbor to other people. And before you do, like uh, be before you do, right? How, how can we be before we do, right? We need a foundational transformation. How do we move from being the priest and the Levite to being the Samaritan, Well, here's the real twist in the story. We are not the Samaritan in the story. Some might read this and think, oh, out of all these, the Samaritan represents us, right? We're supposed to identify with him. No. When Jesus shared this story, he put the Samaritan in the place of Savior, and he put the Jewish law expert in the place of the man on the road. He put the Jewish law expert in the needy place. Jesus could have told the story, there was a Samaritan on the road and a Jewish scribe came in on his donkey and he reached across racial barriers and prejudices and helped this injured and destitute Samaritan. That still would have been controversial. It still would have been shocking for that time. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't paint the, the expert The scribe in this light at all he puts the this guy on the broken down road right we are not the samaritan we are the man on the road we are in need of mercy the good samaritan is jesus and he has shown us mercy and those who have been shown mercy are called to do likewise Jesus tells this story as he's on his way to the cross. Remember, we talked about that last week. He's on his way to die for humanity at cost to himself. God in his compassion didn't withdraw from us, even though we were his enemies. He drew near. He saw the brokenness. He saw the ugliness. He saw the mess. He saw the cost, and he drew closer. Jesus draws near to us even today when we're broken and battered on the road. He picks us up. He gives us rest. He stays with us. Jesus is unrushed. Jesus chose to become a neighbor to us coming from heaven to earth. Right? Philippians 2.7, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. He became our neighbor. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Paul tells us, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. We love because he first loved us. 1 John four nineteen. We can be a neighbor because he was a neighbor to us. We can love our neighbors because we have been loved by God, right? We have not only been shown what that kind of love looks like because of Jesus, we are recipients of it, right? So why would we withhold it from others, right? What would it look like if we took these words as radically as they're written, Right? They're pretty radical words. If you, if you were fresh to the scriptures and reading this, this would have a very big impact on you. Right? It's especially hard if you've been reading scripture for a long time to be able to really understand just how heavy these words are. Right? Sometimes our senses have been dulled, but this is calling for revolutionary love, right? and it's by this love that Jesus is made known to us in our community. It's by this love that even people come to know who Jesus is. It's by this love that we are able to spread the gospel. Now, the Roman emperor, Julian, he ruled Rome into the middle of the second century AD. One of his big initiatives was to eradicate Christianity from the Roman Empire after Constantine had declared it the religion of Rome. And so he pushed for a renaissance of early Roman religion, the paganism that they had practiced formerly. In a letter about this, he wrote, The religion of the Greeks, that's the former religion, does not yet prosper, as I would wish, on account of those who profess it. Why, then, do we think that this is sufficient and do not observe how the kindness of Christians to strangers— their care for the burial of their dead and the sobriety of their lifestyle has done the most to advance their cause. Right? Their kindness to strangers has done the most to advance the Christian cause. Right? For it is disgraceful when no Jew is a beggar and the impious Galileans, that's the name Julian gave Christians, when these impious Galileans support our poor in addition to their own Everyone is able to see that our co-religionists are in want of aid from us. Teach also those who profess the Greek religion to contribute such services and the villages of the Greek religion to offer the first fruits to the gods. This is a primary source, right? You can look it up. This is Julian's letter to Arsasius. And so he wants to imitate and recreate Christian neighbor love towards strangers as a means of advancing the Greek religion. He's like, come on, the Christians are spreading so fast because of their love for strangers. We need to compete. But there was no competition. Christianity's momentum could not be stopped, and manufacturing Christ's love is a fool's errand. We love because he loved us first. We don't love to sell people a brand We don't love to get people to agree with us. We don't love to vindicate ourselves, right? We don't love so that God will love us. If you are a Christian, if we believe in Jesus, we love because we have been loved by God through Christ. Does this mean that people who don't believe in Jesus are incapable of showing love? No. God has created us all in his image Right? He, he's created us to love, and in his grace, he has allowed all of us to love. All can love, right? but, but not all have experienced his love through faith. Right? That's the difference. Right? Loving our neighbors is motivated by compassion. It's displayed through acts of mercy, and it's made possible by the love of God.